This podcast is being recorded on Ngunnawal and Ngambri land. We pay our respects to the traditional owners of this country and elders past and present. We extend our respect to any First Nations, Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people joining us today. Satara Uthayakumaran arrived in Canberra only two years ago in 2021 to start her double degree in law and arts, so she's now a third-year student. Since starting at ANU, Satara has become a youth ambassador for Anti-Slavery Australia. She has joined the board for Domestic Violence Crisis Service ACT, and she is currently a youth advisory counsellor for the US Embassy in Australia. Satara is also currently the president of Women in Law ANU, and she recently co-launched Lawyers for Diversity ACT. I'm really excited to speak to Satara today to discuss what it's like for her being a law student whilst being a part of these amazing social justice and community groups. So thank you for joining us on Law and Disorder, Satara. Thank you so much for having me. Um, so my first question for you is why did you choose to study law? Yeah, um, so I guess my reason is a little bit different to, I suppose, uh, quite a few people. So I'm a young carer for someone with a disability um, and I'm also a woman of colour. So I guess advocating for the marginalised has always been a, a big passion of mine. Um, but this also means that kind of when I was growing up, I often had to interact with very complex, you know, administrative issues um, and appeals processes to do with things like the NDIS uh, and therefore saw the very real impacts of the law on marginalised communities, particularly uh, regarding disability and, you know, migration and things like that. So I think coming from a very kind of intersectional community, I really felt the need for more diverse voices in the law because for me, looking at it as a student or as a young person, I saw it as this very homogenous, white, privileged profession, uh, often very, you know, unempathetic, um, didn't really understand the issues that were impacting Australia's most marginalised communities. And therefore, I felt really compelled to try and get involved in that process myself. Um, because I was in a state where I was privileged enough to apply for law school and then get in. So that's kind of one of the reasons, probably the main propelling reason why I decided to do law. Uh, so it was my interest in, yeah, in elevating the voices of, of Australia's marginalised communities who have to often interact with the law much more than, and disproportionately so, uh, than other communities, yeah. Mm, it's really inspiring to hear someone say that, yeah, they come to the law with that um, I guess, lens of advocacy and wanting to elevate, I think you, you don't hear a lot of that. Um, and so I guess I'm curious with once you started law, how did you become involved, actually involved and in doing these things on the ground in your community? Yeah, absolutely. So I think moving to Canberra, I was very lucky because I met quite a few people uh, who were already very based in the kind of activism happening in Australia's capital and, and in Canberra. So they would send me through opportunities, but I did really have to seek them out, I think, as well. So, for example, yeah, I, I started doing some work with the Domestic Violence Crisis Service at DVCS in my first year. And I became quite close with some of the board members as a result because I was doing some work with them. And they were really amazing and they encouraged me to apply for the board uh, in the AGM that year because they said that young kind of marginalised but also intersectional voices were really not being showcased and not being prioritised in boards of organisations mm -hmm. like these. And that was also during the context of the whole March for Women and, you know, the government was doing a lot in terms of domestic violence policy and things like that. Um, and I think so the role of intersectional voices was such a big thing at that point. 
And so I was very grateful to be able to then be elected to that position because apparently I kind of had a different experience that the pe- mm. other people hadn't um, and that was something that I could bring to the role. But um, I think at the same time, like finding things within the ANU as well. So, for example, connecting with a few people uh, who I t- who turned out to be, you know, the founders of the Women in Law Association, which, which only started up about, yeah, a couple of years ago and being able to then kind of be mentored by them and then, um, you know, take the role of president, which was incredible, things like that. Um, but, I, yeah, definitely I think with law I've had to kind of complement my, like, hard studies mm-hmm. and, and the kind of black-letter law that I've been learning with this kind of advocacy route. But that's very much, I think, for me, been, yeah, seeking them out in the community and trying to, yeah, see what I can do kind of on the ground as well. Mm. And do you think that your the beginning of your study in law em- emphasised your passion for advocacy or do you think it it impacted the way in which you sought out those opportunities or was it always something that you wanted to do and you were going to do that regardless of how your first, you know, year or so went at ANU? Yeah, no, it was really interesting because I think coming into law school, I saw it as this very black and white thing. So, you know, I'd always been very encouraged to kind of do it for the advocacy purposes. But then when I came into law school and was kind of hit by, you know, the law Mm. and, and, law school is very hard as well so I think I saw it as something very removed to begin with and I thought maybe I can't actually integrate the two because it doesn't look like there's scope for much and I remember kind of sitting in classes in first year and people um, including myself would raise kind of arguments against say particular judgments that had been made because maybe they didn't prioritize the voice of someone who was marginalized in that particular case or they were they were kind of really telling one narrative of the story and I remember kind of being told that's not going to be in the exam that's not accessible that's not right Mm. um and so that kind of discouraged me at the beginning from pursuing that advocacy kind of route because I was told that there was like a right answer Mm. and then you kind of had to follow this very formulaic structure to the law and so it seemed like something very removed and very unhuman to begin with but I think as I started to get more involved with things like women in law but then also um through that getting involved with like lawyers for diversity and, and kind of launching that I think, and then also working DVCS, I guess, I think I started to realise that the law actually had much more human impacts and it was simply the way that it was being taught by some people um, and that that was like just plainly wrong because that's not how the law works. It is very human. It interacts with people's lives and it has disproportionate impacts on marginalised communities. So I think actually once I was kind of going into my second and third year, that's when I really started using law as a mechanism for change um, rather than seeing it as this very removed mm. privileged thing. Um, so, yeah, definitely was something that I had to kind of grow into. Yeah, it's so amazing that you had the critical thinking skills to be able to question the judgments and stuff that you're taught in your young years of law school. But it's such a shame that people kind of, I don't know, shut down those arguments because I've always been so, I guess, inspired by people who can question the things that we're learning in class because I've never felt like I could do that. So <laughs> that's very cool. Do you think it's your lived experience that causes you to have those skills to be able to question, you know, what we're learning in that way? Yeah, absolutely. I think for me, the way that I kind of went about it was who I guess is not being talked about in this case. So mm. if there was a particular case that we were studying in in, school, in law school and I felt like the absence of a voice um, or, for example, it was to do with like a marginalised person, a person from a marginalised background, but we didn't hear about their case very much or it wasn't really important to the kind of rule that we were learning. I think that's where, for me, I kind of perked up and said, well, how about we kind of have a look at the whole picture or look the other side or, or mm. things like that. And I think that often wasn't explored, at least in my first year. Um, And so, yeah, I think 
definitely it's probably having that lived experience of being from communities where people are very much ignored when it mm. comes to the law or being disproportionately impacted um, by, I would say, like the violence of the law in many aspects. So I think I, I've been very kind of lucky to be able to see that perspective just simply by nature of like where I've grown up and who I've grown up around. Uh, but I know that that wasn't something that everyone could see as well simply because they haven't been in those environments. So I am very grateful kind of... Um, for my upbringing and the communities I was in. Mm. And do you think you've seen more of the violent impacts of the law in the advocacy that you've done and that you're now doing in DVCS and Anti-Slavery Australia and those kinds of positions? Absolutely. Um, Particularly with DVCS, I think it's like domestic violence is such a complex issue. It's such an intersectional issue. So, you know, you've got domestic violence in in kind of on one hand, but then you also have domestic violence towards, you know, people with disabilities and people of colour and Indigenous communities. And so I think there are so many layers to it and I think seeing that really helped me kind of use the law to frame my understanding of the issues in that in that space particularly um, to do with you know disability Uh, one of the things that I was very grateful for was being able to chat to one of the disability liaison officers at the Supreme Court here in the ACT and hearing about all the kind of issues that face people with disabilities in terms of accessibility to the law and particularly in the case of DVCS when you have domestic violence um, cases a lot of the times those people or victims of uh, DV who have a disability and come forward won't be able to access those processes Mm. of justice simply because the justice system remains inaccessible for so many so I think being in that role at DVCS, having that holistic understanding of how the sector works, but also what are the flaws in the sector for people um, from intersectional backgrounds was was really interesting and and so crucial, I think, in my understanding, yeah. Mm. And how does your advocacy that you're doing now fit in with your career aspirations and where you want to go beyond your current study that you're doing? Yeah, uh, so I think my activism now definitely is shaping what I want to do in the future. So At the moment, I think one of the topical things is that the Royal Commission on the Violence, Neglect and Exploitation of People with Disability is currently coming to a close and that will be – they will be releasing their final report in – at the end of September – um, and I think after speaking to lots of people kind of in the space, particularly in the ACT, a lot of people are hopeful that a lot of kind of the legal, um, you know, shortfalls will be coming out as well in that report and people will start to question the courts and question the way that the law kind of really disenfranchises people with disabilities. So I think the work that I'm doing now, particularly, with, you know, DVCS and Anti-Slavery Australia and all of that um, is going to severely kind of impact the way that I go in the future in terms of advocating for those kinds of mm. issues and making the law more accessible. So I think it's definitely a really good way to kind of set me up for something something more. Um, I'm not entirely sure what I want to go down specifically, but I definitely know it's about kind of helping people access the law um, much more than they, they do at the moment. Um, but yeah, I think it's a really good kind of way to way to transition into it. Yeah. And you recently had the very exciting opportunity to appear as a panel guest on the TV show The Drum. I'm really interested to hear about what that process was like and what it was like being on the show. Yeah, it was incredible. Um, I was very lucky to be on The Drum and, you know, they reached out to me, I think, after reading some of the articles I'd written um, in the past about a few a few of the things that I do and I was very yeah very privileged to be on with such cool panelists like I was on with um Graeme Innes who was the former disability discrimination mm. commissioner um so to hear his point of view also as a lawyer a lawyer by career was incredible and I think given kind of the public opportunity to talk about these issues was incredible because 
like I said, I came from a community where those voices weren't, mm-hmm. weren't heard, they weren't platformed um, and they were often very, like suppressed. So I think being able to kind of have that moment, it was a very like, it was a big moment for me and I think for a lot of people that I'd spoken to beforehand who I wanted to talk to before I went on the show so I could kind of represent the issues of people in my community and I think, you know, coming back home and talking to them and seeing that, like, you know, perhaps I'd made them proud I think was the biggest feeling um, yeah. or the, the best feeling that I had because it meant that people, yeah, who were so often silenced and so often kind of trodden on um, felt that they had a small outlet mm-hmm. to kind of say what they wanted to say um, and that's something that, yeah, I'll, I'll never forget, yeah, that moment. It's really amazing and you were so poised when you were talking <laughs> yeah. on the show were you nervous and oh my what God. did you do in the lead up like did you have any strategies or things that you had to do yeah I was I was really nervous <laughs> um yeah people kind of said you looked calm and I was like not at all I was really freaking out and um I was yeah it was absolutely nerve-wracking and you know they they tell you don't look at the camera you have yeah. to look at like oh my the god panelists. too much to think I about I was like no this is so hard mm. um and it was just, it was very surreal, uh, a very surreal moment. In terms of preparation, I wanted to be across like everything. I was mm. like, I need to be as up to date with the current affairs as I can be um, so that I don't look kind of stupid on the panel. <laughs> um, and the thing with the drum is that because they do topics, new topics every day, that, yeah. like with every news cycle. So it's it's very much up to date, mm. kind of current information. So you get given the topics on the day itself. Oh my God. So I kind of, I like blocked out that entire morning and I was like, I'm just going to wait until I get the topics yeah. and just grind. Um, so it was a very, it was a very fun process, a very stressful process. Um, I kind of had to take a few breaths, but it, yeah, very nervous, but I was very lucky. I think the panelists were lovely and mm. the ABC um, producers were, were lovely as well. And, and they realized it was my first time. So very welcoming. Um, so I'm very grateful. It was a very comfortable experience. Yeah. yeah. Did they give you the questions beforehand or did you have to be kind of ready for anything they might ask about those topics? Yeah. So they gave me the general topic areas mm. and potentially I kind of spoke to them about what I might be able to contribute but no I didn't get the questions beforehand mm. so it could have been anything but I think um I could kind of guess where they might be going and and I think like I just had to you know take the question on board see if I could answer mm. it and, and yeah but it was a it was a fun but yeah, very nerve-wracking experience yeah and how do you think that your confidence and public speaking skills have grown like do you have any tips about building those because yeah you're a confident and great speaker so thank you um yeah look I think with public speaking it's very much if you're talking about something you're passionate about it's going to flow nat- very much naturally to you um so I, I think I realized that a lot of my nerves had kind of subsided particularly on the drum when I started speaking about things that were close to me so mm-hmm. when I started talking about disability access and youth um you know the cost of living for young people and things like that things that I'm very passionate about I think I just saw it as a conversation and that to me was what helped me kind of just speak Mm. uh naturally but that definitely doesn't happen all the time I think it's yeah definitely when you're it's something that you know about and you're you're across and you feel that it's something that you can contribute um I think that's when it comes kind of naturally I think also people need to realize that sometimes being a good public speaker or being a good speaker isn't necessarily being the loudest speaker so you don't always have to kind of assert like this presence when you're in the room um, or kind of command the attention of the room when you're speaking. I think a lot of the most effective speakers that I've heard, um, particularly, you know, at the ANU but elsewhere, are people who are softer, who have less to say but have more important things to say, mm-hmm. um, who aren't speaking for the sake of it and I think who are, are much more considered in what they're, what they're kind of putting across. So I think there's, like, debunking the myth that there's one kind of public speaker, like, that's definitely not the case. I think there are all sorts of speakers and just kind of being comfortable in whatever, like, style of speaking mm-hmm. um, you want is is the kind of way to go I think. Mm. 
So if we come back to your uni life now, yeah. your life as a law student, how do you balance that with the activism and advocacy work that you're doing and what does it look like kind of on a weekly basis day to day are you busy all the time can you sleep (laughs) (laughs) I think the secret is obviously effective time management but also I think in my case trying to merge the two so I would say that you know many of my personal commitments center around my activism and that kind of supplements my studies as well with you know critical legal discourse and and things like that so I think trying to use the two to complement each other makes it so much easier because then it feels like it's kind of one big project that I'm undertaking um I think like in terms of practically like a schedule you know I'll try to put my classes on like two days and then I'll work on the other days and then I'll do like my activism you know in the evenings or on the weekend um and I think I'm very lucky because I'm the kind of person that likes to, like kind of thrives on being busy so mm. often if I'm not busy I'll fall into a bit of a slump yeah, um, same. yeah <laughs> so I, it's really bad people are like take a break I'm like no I'm just gonna get like depressed <laughs> yeah. um I think it's important to like be busy um for me at least yeah. but yeah I definitely think using activism as well as the law to like complement each other makes it just like so much easier um, and so much more interesting on both accounts. Mm. Could you talk a bit about your part-time work and what you do and where that fits into the picture and managing those three things? Yeah yeah so I do some part-time work for the ACT Bar Association um, and I also kind of on and off do some part-time work for one of the barrister chambers in Canberra Um, and that's a really interesting job because you kind of see the other side of the law in terms of the bar um, and the judiciary and things like that and seeing how that all works out um it's also a really interesting kind of insight into diversity in the law in some senses because one of the things I had to do for the ACT Bar Association was collect the diversity stats on the new barristers coming through um and just let's just say I was not a fun day like you know seeing um seeing the kind of lack of I think Mm. people of color particularly in the ACT at the bar um and and in the judiciary and so I think that's given me a really interesting different perspective on the law and how it works um in court and, and at that kind of higher at the higher ranks um, and so I'm very, yeah, also very grateful for that position and the way that that's shaped my outlook um, on the law. But it also means that, yeah, you get to get mentored by those kinds of people. So that's also really incredible. Um, and I'm very yeah grateful for the people that I've met through those jobs. Mm. And so you moved to Canberra in 2021 from Sydney. What was the or what's the hardest adjustment that you've had to make since yeah, moving? Yeah, um, there are so many. I think like the more superficial one is that I literally can't cook. So like it was so <laughs> tricky to try and figure that out. But um, I think on a more, maybe on a more serious note, um, I think in my line of work and in what I do, you're often, you often kind of come home, you very rarely come home satisfied. I think you always come home frustrated because something's gone wrong or you know, there's some kind of inequality in the world that is just really annoying you. Um, and I think that often happens with, with what I do. And so I used to have my family to be able to kind of rant to about that. And, and I still do. I can still call them, but it's, it's very different. Um, and often, you know, it's not quite the same to come home to like your friends and your housemates who've also had really big days um, at uni or work and, and kind of just rant to them. I, I definitely still do. But I think there's something different about having like, you know, your mom, like over a cup of tea or something, having a bit of a just rant at her and her validating all your experiences. Um, so I think I, I miss the kind of counselling aspect of my family um, because they're, they're one of my biggest support networks. But I think, yeah, I think in terms of adjusting, that's probably the hardest thing, not always having that outlet to be able to release everything. Yeah. 
Yeah. Yeah, it's a really big thing and something that I relate to, finding it really difficult to transition from, yes, something like advocacy because I do advocacy work, Mm. being frustrated and, yeah, just feeling like whatever you do isn't enough and then still having to come home at the end of the day and think, no, but I have to wind down, you know, I can't just – you know, keep this with me. Do you have any tips for how to wind down and how to switch off and self-care and those kinds of things? Yeah, um, I have like a self-care routine at night that I like do obsessively every night because it's just my time and I think it's my time to take care of myself and I love it so much. So I would really recommend doing something like that. Um, sometimes I think the beauty of living in camera because it's so small is that you can kind of just pop to like the movies whenever mm. you want. So sometimes if I'm ha- like I've had a really big day and I just want to kind of chill and like maybe watch a, like, a horror movie with a friend, I'll be yeah. like, want to like head to Dendi, like let's go. And yeah. so I'll do that. So I think just things like that, spontaneous outings, like do it, do like a cheeky Messina run, um, you mm. know, things like that. I think with friends, surrounding yourself with people, I think isolation is important. Um, in terms of self-care but I think it's also important to surround yourself with good people and friends um, who will also make sure that you're okay and take care of you and I think having company um, is really important as well so I think those are the kinds of things that have worked for me a bit of a balance of both yeah Mm. and you're still in your third year of law school so something that I was just astounded to (laughs) realise when we first spoke was that you haven't done any law electives yet yeah but what's been your favourite law course so far have you had a favourite yeah um look I think there have been a few I think my probably the one that I've really enjoyed the most is was international law I think simply because it was so non-black letter law it was so like fluid and it moved with cultural like you know the way that different cultures operated Mm. and different um you know it was very like it had no tight ends and I think I really loved that I loved that it was dynamic and it moved with you know the change changing kind of geopolitical atmosphere and things like that um and it, it just felt very relatable and human um because I think it was it was all about understanding people and understanding cultures and national identities and working the law around that and I think that was really interesting um, I think I went to an international law panel that the ANU ran and I remember one of the panellists saying something very striking which was that often in that kind of line of work the most important thing to have is like emotional intelligence and cultural mm. sensitivities. So you have to know like what makes people click. Mm. And it's really what, good to hear. Yeah, yeah, no, exactly. And, you know, coming con- like as a contrast to my first year, I was like, that's amazing. Mm. Like I want that. I want to be able to connect to people through the law and to different cultures and different communities. So I think that's why I I really enjoyed that course, yeah. Yeah. And are there any law courses that you're excited to do particularly? Do you know um, or any like things that you're excited to do in the law school? Yeah. um, Look, I think that it will be really interesting. I'd love to do – I'm not entirely sure what it's called but I know it's the one where you go um, to Indigenous communities. Deep listening clinic. Yeah, that one. Um, I've seen that like – advertise everyone I think it looks incredible and I'd love to do that I think particularly in the current climate with Mm. the voice and everything going to a community and and kind of again connecting to the law in a very different way Um, I think Indigenous legal theory is so fascinating and being able to understand how First Nations people actually practice and speak the law um, because I'm, I'm sure that's probably very starkly different to the way that we do it under the kind of colonial system. So I think that that's something that I'm really looking forward to and I, I think I'd love to do. Mm. And who's your law school or career inspiration? Do you have one? Oh. <laughs> um, so one of the barristers that I, I worked for who is now um, a judge in the federal circuit and family court 
um, of Australia, New South Wales, is a lady called Rebecca Curran and she's absolutely incredible. She's such a powerhouse um, and she took me in in my second year to work as a research assistant at, at Heard Barristers Chambers when she was in the ACT and I think she was one of the first people that really kind of sparked my understanding of the idea that law was a personal thing um, and to be a woman, to be a woman of colour, could inform the way that you practice law because I think up until then like I said I'd been I'd very much seen law as this detached thing you have to just practice it as a professional there's no room for your own personal experiences or your own kind of diverse background but I think she was someone who really kind of challenged that and now she's a judge yeah in New South Wales and and I'm, I'm really happy that that's the way the judiciary is going like you know getting people like her mm. um, to make the law much more personal and, and empathetic so yeah definitely one of my inspirations yeah so in terms of advice, yes. do you have any advice that you would have given to your first year self when you're about to start law? Yeah, oh, so many things. <laughs> I think like the, the first thing is just I wish I could like tell my first year self how interdisciplinary law is. Like law doesn't have to be this removed black and like white thing. It can inter- um, intersect with, you know, philosophy, English, mm-hmm. activism, things like that. Um, but I think the biggest thing is just don't have imposter syndrome. And syndrome, I think... Like the biggest thing coming in for me was that I did feel like a, a major level of imposter syndrome. You know, I hadn't really done legal studies at school. Um, I wasn't, you know, the kind of typical law student. I wasn't that confident in speaking up in class. And I think if I had just told myself that, like, you deserve to be here, you know, you got the marks, you got the, you know, they, they selected you for a reason. And I would say that to lots of other people, lots of other young women of colour particularly, that you deserve to be there. I think I would just, yeah, hone that in majorly. Um, don't don't feel the level of imposter syndrome that you do because, um, you know, this is your space as well and your own, you can make that your own as well, yeah. Do you have any advice for law students who are in their early years and wanting to get involved with activism and advocacy? Yeah, absolutely. You know, like seek it out. Um, it's there. It's It's definitely there. I think there's an appetite for it and it's just a matter of finding people who have similar interests. I mean, with Willa, Women in Law, um, I didn't know that there was such an eager interest in the kind of role of women in the law until I became involved with the group and then became president and we hosted events and we got like massive turnouts from female law students because it was something that had just been on everyone's minds but no one had said it or no one had wanted to create a group before. So it's there. People are really interested and people want to do something. It's just about having the opportunity to like bring people together. So I think um, knowing that there are other people just like you, find those and seek out those networks and get involved because... Something, yeah, particularly with Willa is that we kind of created a bit of like a sisterhood of sorts. Um, You know, no one's – it's not like this catty kind of environment where everyone's out to get each other, which I know sometimes the stereotype of law school can be that it's very competitive. I think a lot of people are just trying to lift other people up and I think it's about finding those people, finding those spaces – um, and not being able, like, not being um, scared of like calling out BS as well. Mm. Like, I know it's very intimidating in your first year, but if you see someone who's treating you as lesser in a seminar or in a class, or you feel that you're being unfairly treated, or you feel that a particular marginalised voice is being ignored, like, don't be afraid to call it yeah. out, or at least tell someone, maybe an older law student, about it, because I'm sure they'll help you out as well. Mm. Uh, do you have any advice, or how can people get involved with the women in law stuff that you're doing? Yeah, absolutely. So we are on Facebook um, and we're open to everyone. Um, So absolutely reach out if you want to get involved with our kind of committee stuff, but also just come along to our events. We always host 
we, we host a lot of kind of partnership events with, you know, like LSS, but also the uh, ACT uh, Law Society and other kind of groups as well. We're currently doing a mentoring program with law, Lawyers for Diversity. So that's a really great way to get involved um, and have those kind of candid conversations about being from a diverse background in the law. Uh, so, yeah, just getting involved in our events, like message us on Facebook. We'd love to like find something for you to do if you'd like to be part of our committee. So things like that. Um, and also, you know, with Lawyers for Diversity, if you want to get involved, there is a membership um, and that's it's non-autonomous mm. so anyone can sign up because we we really recognize the importance of having allies as well mm. and so it's it's a very inclusive community and there are so many opportunities I think once you sign up to these organizations to get involved um, and we want to make signups as easy and accessible as possible so yeah please please do <laughs> yeah amazing so my final question for you Satara is what is your law school life hack yeah um I was I was thinking about this and I was like I should, I'm just going to brutally put it out yep. there. Um, literally pretend you're a rich white man. <laughs> like it's so bad, but like that's unfortunately, yeah. I think you just need to have the confidence of a rich mm. white man mm. um, to be in law school because mm. I think like really frankly and candidly putting it, I think law school in terms of the kind of cohort around the country as well. I've spoken to a lot of my friends who are at, you know, Sydney Uni and UNSW and, um, you know, Melbourne and things like that. And I, I think it's very much the same across the board. Young women of colour, women from different intersectional backgrounds, women with disabilities, um, you know, anyone who particularly comes from a marginalised background feels the imposter syndrome as soon as they walk into law school in first year. And that takes a massive toll on our confidence and that means that we can't occupy that space and change the space of the legal profession because we just feel so intimidated by everyone else who's been there um, because of, you know, privilege or um, who are kind of acting very privileged. And, and you know, I think something on the drum that really struck me was um, when Graham, uh, who was a disability discrimination commissioner, said one of the reasons why we have such an inaccessible legal system in many jurisdictions for people with disabilities is because the people who are making these laws and the people who are enacting these laws and kind of driving the legal profession are often people who have never ever had to interact with someone with a disability mm. before, who have never had to have that lived experience. So it is so important to have diverse voices, you know, in the legislating process, but also in the kind of implementation process. And so one thing that I would say is like literally have the confidence of a white man because you deserve to be there. Um, they they think they deserve to be there. And so I think you just have to assert yourself as much as you can. And I know that is really hard for people who don't feel confident enough, you know, raising their voice in a room. And I, I just talked about the kind of different types of public speakers. But unfortunately, that's just the reality of how it is. And I think once we get more people in that space behaving and acting confidently, we can actually pave the way for other people to come in as well um, who might not be as confident kind of raising their voice in a room. And so that's probably my, my number one hack, maybe a little bit controversial, but um, <laughs> yeah, I'll, I'll leave it there. <laughs> yeah, no, that's really awesome. Thank you so much, Satara. You are incredibly inspiring and all the work that you're doing is amazing. Thank so, you so um, much. <laughs> yeah, no, I'm really excited. I hope our listeners can get involved with the awesome things that you're doing too. Fantastic. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of Law and Disorder.